0: The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org. We're going to go ahead and get started. Um, I want to welcome everybody to this meeting. This is 1930s, from the Unemployment Councils to unemployed councils to the Sit-Down Strikes. Um, my name is Corey. I'm going to be moderating this session. Um... So, we have today the pleasure of welcoming Lincoln Christensen. He is a longtime labor activist and a socialist. He's a contributor to Socialist Worker and also a poet. He is currently a graduate student in library and envir- in information sciences, which is why he's displayed these books. <laughs> today. Um, he has been a member and steward of the Chicago Truck Drivers Union, a member of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, Local 710, a member of the National Writers, Writers Union. And recently as a steward of the graduate employee organization AFT Local 6300 um, was a member of the GEO strike committee that in 2009 last November led 2,700 grad students on a successful strike against the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and this April he was elected to the GEO coordinating committee as an officer at large. Um, so he's going to be speaking for about 40 minutes, and then we'll open it up for a discussion. Um, so without further ado. Thanks, Corey.
1: Okay. See, the problem with the standing ovation is I'm not the one that's supposed to be standing. <laughs> so at any point um, during the, the talk, I am a fully interactive speaker. So if there's a word I, I use or some sort of phrase that you want me to define or explain in more depth, please do just stop me and I will do my best to explain what I was talking about if I wasn't clear. So 1930s, from unemployed councils to sit down strikes. The common view, and this is a huge topic, okay, so let's understand right from the beginning this is going to be a very broad overview. There's not going to be a lot of depth and detail here. That's what all of this is for. And that's, and that's probably only a quarter of the depth and detail that you, that you if you really want to know the 30s, of, that's the things that you're going to be reading. So the common view of the 1930s um, is, I think, captured in Dorothea Lange's picture, Migrant Mother, where we see um, Frances Owen Thompson and two of her seven children sitting in stunned silence in, in, a, in a farmer labor's camp in, in California. She's a pea picker, and it's the hype, It's 1936. And, um, you know, people are still starving. People are still out of work. And you sort of get that picture of, of the desolation of, uh, of the 30s. The flip side of that, then, is that along with that picture, um, you also have the textbooks and the websites and the monuments in Washington, D.C. of the breadlines, the FDR Memorial, which then paint this picture of sainted President Franklin Delano Roosevelt coming down and with his alphabet soup feeding the masses and giving everybody jobs and putting everybody back to work. There, There is, of course, a problem with that historical memory. It's not true. Um, the photo that, that, uh, that Lang took of Thompson was taken in 1936. Roosevelt had been president already three years at this point. And while its true unemployment was down from 25% to 11%, billions of people are still destitute. People are hurting, people are hungry, people are homeless. They're hopping freight trains and heading across the country looking for food and work. Further, this false history paints a picture of a passive uh, um, unemployed and poor working, workers waiting for relief from above, waiting for you know, God FDR to, um, bring manna from Washington and beat everybody. Um, this view ignores the fact that the US working class did not wait on Roosevelt, and were in fact frustrated with the slow pace of reform and frustration. As you can hear in the nineteen thirty 1930 poem, 1934 poem by Langston Hughes, Ballad of Roosevelt. And you might recognize parts of this from The People Speak. The pot was empty. The cupboard was bare. I said, Papa, what's the matter here? I'm waiting on Roosevelt, son. Roosevelt, Roosevelt. Waiting on Roosevelt, son. The rent was due and the light was out. I said, Tell me, Mama, what's it all about? We're waiting on Roosevelt, son. Roosevelt, Roosevelt. Just waiting on Roosevelt. Sister got sick and the doctor wouldn't come because we couldn't pay him the proper sum. A on Roosevelt, Roosevelt, Roosevelt. Still waiting on Roosevelt. Then one day they put us out the house. Ma and Pa was meek as a mouse. Still waiting on Roosevelt, Roosevelt. And when they felt those cold winds blow and didn't have no place to go, Pa said, I'm tired of waiting on Roosevelt, Roosevelt, Roosevelt. Damn tired of waiting on Roosevelt. I can't get a job, and I can't get no grub. Backbone and navels doing the belly rub, but waiting on Roosevelt, Roosevelt, Roosevelt. And a lot of other folks, what's hungry and cold, done stopped believing what they'd been told by Roosevelt, Roosevelt. Roosevelt, because the pot's still empty and the cupboard's still bare, and you can't build a bungalow out of air. Mr. Roosevelt, listen! What's the matter here? The matter at hand was that, once again, workers were being forced to pay for the crisis of capitalism. Rather than wait for Roosevelt, workers, the unemployed, veterans, small farmers, and others fought back against evictions, fought for unemployment relief, jobs, and unions. Thousands joined radical and revolutionary organizations far from the working class taking the hardships of the depression passively, fightbacks and strikes after building slowly in the early years of the depression were common in the 1930s, and insurrection and revolution were common fears often voiced by the bosses and their media. Now the topic of this presentation, the 1930s from unemployed councils to sit down strikes, is a vital part of reclaiming working class history, and the lessons of those struggles are just as important today as they were 70 to 80 years ago. So for the rest of my time, I'm going to give a broad overview of the struggles of the 1930s, touching on the unemployed councils of the early de- decade, the strike wave of 1934, and the sit-down strikes of 1936 to 37. A couple lessons I want to highlight are the role of radicals in the various struggles, the need for revolutionary organization, and as well as discussing working class history, I want to touch on some of the artistic voices of the period, as I did with Hughes a few moments ago it is vitally important that we rescue the left-wing artists of the period who would otherwise be forgotten or sanitized out of the history to expose the impact and influence that the movements had on the mainstream arts and culture. Movements also reflect the culture they're in, but they also impact the culture that they're in. This this plays both ways. So yes, you're going to hear more poetry. So if you're allergic, (laughs) there's the door. (laughs) Let's back up really quickly and talk about the 1920s, just to give a little context for um, the 1930s. The last years of World War I and the years immediately following saw an upsurge in radicalism in the United States. Inspired by the Russian Revolution of 1917, which helped hasten the end of the war, um, and fueled by pent-up demands that American Federation of Labor, AFL leaders, um, had kept a lid on during the war, US workers took to the picket lines and joined radical organizations. Four million workers participated in strikes in 1919. By the end of 1919, more than 40 cities had labor parties, breaking from the two-party stranglehold of um, big business. In 1920, there were 253 wildcat strikes. A wildcat strike is when a union goes out on strike without the permission of its executive body or its international body. Um, so it's kind of a big deal because the workers are sort of out of control of the union leaders. The February 6 to 11, 1919, general strike in Seattle saw worker, workers actually organizing all public services on their own, setting up an alternative, a dual power to the Seattle public authorities. And that, that situation could have ended very differently and could have, was near insurrection. While the Socialist Party had grown during the war period um, and after approaching 100,000 members, the politics of its leaders were far more conservative than that of its members. In fact, in 1919, the leadership of the SP expelled two-thirds of the party, the left-wing two-thirds of the party, so that it could maintain a majority. So I guess if you kick everybody out, then you've got a majority of the right-wingers and you you still have your party. These these expelled two-thirds went on to form the Communist Party in 1920, 1921. Now, in response to this radicalism, the US government ratcheted up um, the repression and unleashed a red scare, persecuting workers, leftists, and immigrants for the rest of the decade. The US Congress, in case you ever wondered how these groups get started and when we say they're connected with business and government, the US Congress created the American Legion as an arm of the National Association of Manufacturers in 1919. We don't have to make this shit up. We don't have to talk about conspiracies because they do it. They sit down and they figure it out and they do it. Um, and the whole point of the American Legion was to combat union shops, consciously, openly anti-union organizations. Attorney General Mitchell Palmer and FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover launched raids on communists and members of the International Workers of the World, the IWW, leading to thousands of arrests and deportations in 1919 and 1920. Immigration laws, big theme this weekend and the last couple months, were written specifically to keep immigrants out who might harbor um, radical ideas based on their place of birth. So certain countries had their quotas drastically cut or eliminated altogether. The bosses forced up productivity and profits with greater automation and crowed about overcoming business cycles. Something we hear every time productivity goes up. So, we'll never have a crisis again. Ha ha. They beat back workers' organizations with thugs, violence, moving plants to the south. This is not a new phenomenon. It's very common in textile for textile mills to go from New England down to the south to the non-union south. And stirring up patriotism and racism. The Ku Klux Klan was at its 20th century height during the 1920s, including meeting with President Wilson in the White House. Think about that for a second. Of the more than 1,100 strikes in the mid to later 1920s, most ended in defeat. The AFL lost a quarter of its membership over the decade, going from 4 million to 3 million, and deportations were up by more than 38,000 per year. While this was roaring 20s for the bosses, up until the stock market crashed, it was far from that for the workers. The 1929 market crash was just one element of a broader economic crisis which saw banks become insolvent, factories and businesses close, and workers lose their jobs. Anymore. By 1933, 25% of U.S. workers were unemployed. Many were homeless, hopping <coughs> freight trains, looking for work and food. So we're talking 15 million people out of work, out of the, out of the work, uh, industrial workforce. Or the wage workforce bosses took advantage of the increasing unemployment to push down wages, easily threatening to replace workers who complained with any number of the army of unemployed. you had lines of people standing outside looking for jobs it was easy to threaten um, working workers with not working workers. <laughs> what are unemployed workers temporarily without a job that's really all they are and that's really how we should all we should think about them as. bosses all right President Hoover wanted to keep the government out of organizing unemployment benefits. He preferred to rely on private charities and relief organizations. Now, of course, when these groups actually did, you know, sort of pry open their wallets and give out a little bit of relief, it came with a high dose of moralism and the sort of blaming the worker for being lazy, blaming them for their, for their own condition. The response from Hoover and the capitalists did not sit well with the unemployed. Um, they weren't looking for charity. They weren't looking for a handout. They were looking for work. They had work. They didn't have work. They wanted to be back at work. They wanted to provide for their families. Um, other, so the unemployed were mad. World War One vets were mad. Uh, workers whose labor had fueled the Roaring Twenties, who had built the skyscrapers, they were all mad. They, were all, they had, had hopes in that American dream and found that those hopes dashed at the end of the 1920s. And you can hear the anger in the lyrics of... Um, The popular song, Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? The song was actually written in 1931 as part of the musical New Americana. But it captures that sort of anger of those various groups at the the desolation of the American dream. They used to tell me I was building a dream. And so I followed the mob. When there was earth to plow or guns to bear, I was always there, right on the job. They used to tell me I was building a dream. With peace and glory ahead, Why should I be standing in line, just waiting for bread? Once I built a railroad, I made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower, up to the sun, brick and rivet and lime. Once I built a tower, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once in khaki suits, gee, we look swell, for that Yankee doodle Dumb. Half a million boots went slogging through hell, and I was the kid with the drum. Say, don't you remember? They called me Al. It was Al all the time. Why don't you remember me? I'm your pal. Buddy, can you spare a dime? Now, this is no revolutionary anthem. This isn't the IWW. This isn't the Little Red Songbook. But nonetheless, it captures... The desperation of many people, and for people on the street hearing the song outside of the musical, over the radio, suddenly identifying, yes, that's what I'm going through. And when that reaches a level of popular culture, we're having, you know, the movements are having an effect. Somebody else is paying attention, and we can take some inspiration from that. So that's why I wanted to bring that one in. But it's important to think, to remember that if the early 30s were only known for anger and frustration, as presented perhaps by, Brother, Can You Spare a Dime?, or um, Ballad of Roosevelt, there wouldn't be much of a story to tell. People were angry. People were disappointed. That's pretty much all you'd have to say, and we could go on to somebody else's talk. But the early 1930s, and believe me, I almost thought I wasn't going to be here. There's a list of heavy hitters right now. Um, The early 1930s were also a time of fight back and struggle, one little remarked on in most U.S. histories, in part because the unemployed struggles of the period were led in the main by members of the U.S. Communist Party. And we don't really talk about that in the United States anymore. So going into the 1930s, the Communist Party, the CP, had a declining membership of 6,000. Besides having members chased out of the um, official labor movement by the right-wing AFL leaders, the CP alienated most of the rest of the labor movement by setting up dual unions or red unions to compete with um, AFL unions. The CP at this point was taking directions from the Comintern, the Communist International, in Stalin's Moscow, and they spent most of their time denouncing other left groups as fascists and social fascists. Um, don't make a lot of friends that way. Um, somewhat ironically, as Danny Lucia notes in ISR number 71, um, next to most recent, the Comintern's perspective predicted an economic collapse sort of happy accident for them, um, so that communist parties around the world were ordered to set up Unemployed Councils, or UCs. This meant the CP in the United States set up its first Unemployed Council in August 1929, two months before the crash. And this would allow the CP to play a leading role in the struggles to come. By March 6, 1930, in fact, the CP had organized a National Unemployed March, which drew more than 500,000 people in 25 cities across the country. So how did the UCs manage to grow so large so fast? One aspect was successful direct action. In Chicago, an organizer of uh, the unemployed council here described how at early meetings an elderly black man stood up, quoting, said, what you folks figure on doing about that colored family that was thrown out of their house today? They're still out there with their furniture on the sidewalk. So the other organizer answered, well, simple, we'll adjourn the meeting, we'll go over there, and we'll put the furniture back in the house, and they did. Brilliant, right? And they, and they found other workers who would hook the gas back up and hook up the electricity and keep, change the locks that, that the sheriffs had changed and put people back in their house. This tactic became very popular, as you might imagine. Um, and in 1932, in New York City alone, 77,000 families were put back in their homes. It used to be sort of the thing to say when the sheriff came to do an eviction, somebody would say, go get the Reds, here comes the sheriff. And you put people back in the house. The second aspect of success was educating the unemployed and and employed workers that unemployment was not a personal failing, but a natural, and from the ruling class perspective, desirable outcome of the normal functioning of capitalism. Today we sort of take unemployment insurance as a given, as a right, as some of us who have been on unemployment for 16 months now, or 16 months now can tell us. Um, Up to the 1930s, however, the unemployed were thought of in much the same way as people now think about folks on welfare. It's your fault. You're a drain on the system. There's something wrong with you, rather than that there's something wrong with the system or the forces beyond your individual control. That is an ideological battle we have yet to win, and we took a beating on that in the 1990s with Clinton, and we, that's something that we still need to overcome if want to get over that divide in our system. However, the pressure put on the U.S. government by the unemployed councils and its movement Established unemployment relief as a societal responsibility, and that was a huge step forward ideologically for our our side. Now, the communists of the 1930s gave us two other key strategies. Um, One was building solidarity between the employed and unemployed, and the second was anti-racist unity. And we'll talk a little bit about how undescribably well, we can describe actually how racist the U.S. was in the early part of the 20th century, but it's it's, it's horrifying, and and we'll we'll take a couple minutes to talk about it. The, solid, the communists understood that as long as bosses could use unemployed, the unemployed as scabs or strikebreakers, workers had less power. But if unemployment relief was at a livable level, you could—I mean, it's not—it's not steak and kidney every day, but it's—you know—you're putting bread on the table and whatnot. Um, workers would have more leverage against the boss because there wouldn't be that army of people waiting to waiting to steal your job. Further, if the unemployed made common cause with the employed employed workers could use their greater economic power to make demands for the unemployed. And we see that best in Detroit. Um, Employed and unemployed workers held joint rallies to protest the small benefits given to to laid off auto workers, who were the bulk of the workers in Detroit at the time, and the unemployed pledged not to scab on auto workers' strikes. And then as, as Lucia notes in March 1932, the Detroit Unemployed Council and the CP-led Auto Workers Union staged the Ford hunger march of 3,000 current and laid-off Ford workers demanding unemployment relief, shorter hours at work, the end to racial discrimination in the plants, and the rights of workers to, to organize. This march was attacked by the police. 75 people were hurt and 5 were killed because the bosses feared the joint power of the unemployed and the employed. Racism has been a major impediment to the working class unity throughout U.S. labor history. Sharon Smith devotes part of every chapter of Subterranean Fire to analyzing race relations in, in a U.S. society split by, as she describes it, racism and racial segregation exceeding that of every other industrial society, with the exception of South African apartheid. That is saying something about the level of racism in this country. The communist led UCs, including those in the South, thought racism and racial segregation practiced by relief agencies, landlords, and governmental bodies. Over the course of the 1930s, in Birmingham and Alabama, for example, multiracial unemployed marches turned into protests by white workers against segregated union halls and for the rights of black co-workers to vote. This is huge. Because the whole point of the Ku Klux Klan was to keep blacks from organizing with whites in the South and from exercising their right to vote. That's what they were created for in, after the Civil War. And that's what they'd been doing. That's what all the lynchings and all the burnings and all the violence had been about for decades. And so, And if you didn't get a chance to go to the talk on the CP earlier today, the thing you have to remember about the CP, all their bad politics aside, and I'm not going to get a chance to talk about those a lot today, they never organized a segregated branch I mean That was fabulous when the, when the Socialist Party for decades had segregated Union locals or just plain refused to organize blacks. The Communist Party made it a point principle never to do such a thing. And that's not to say that the 1930s were witness to constant large-scale fight back. Many struggles were small, localized, and ended in defeat. However, many participants of these struggles passed through from the unemployed councils and as part of their own victory, found work, took the lessons they learned into the workplaces that they moved into and so brought those lessons back and we'll see those same now employed workers come up again later on. Now like the unemployed, many employed workers were not content to wait on Roosevelt. 1933, the first year the Roosevelt administration saw 1,695 strikes, double the number for 1932. These, now these strikes involved over a million workers, which was four times the number for 1932. Roosevelt, in May of 1933, signed the National Industrial Recovery Act. Big, long, legal document, lots of language you can barely understand, the important section being Section 7A, which set a minimum wage, set maximum hours, and granted, quoting, Employees shall have the right to organize and bargain collectively through representatives of their own and shall be free from the interference, restraint, or coercion of employers. While unions took that to mean, hey, the president says you should join the union, employers took that to mean, hey, we can organize company unions and keep the workers' unions out. And so you have a battle for the next decade over what that means and whose union um, is going to be in the shop. While the number of strikes in 1934 only increased by 150, so over the number of 1933, 1934 saw the most significant strikes of the decade to that point. Um, and there's many things to read about the year 1934, about the various strikes. And we'll talk about some of those. There's the Toledo auto light strike. Auto light makes um, spark plugs, because that phrase never really makes sense unless you understand what a spark plug is what's a, and why is it light. Um, There's the San Francisco General Strike, the Minneapolis Teamster Strike, and the East Coast Textile Strike. Three of these strikes ended in victory, one was a defeat, um, and I'll give just the bare highlights of each. But first, I want to touch on a common thread that runs through 1934. And that is, of the four strikes, the three that were won were run by rank and file radicals, not the union leadership, not the folks in the AFL. um, And the one that lost was run by the folks in the AFL. Um, Not a coincidence. So let's take a minute to explore the dynamic um, quickly. Unions, groups of workers who get together to defend their rights and negotiate a contract with the boss, are, by their very definition, reform organizations. Because at the end of the negotiating process, you sign a contract with the boss that, while it doesn't explicitly say, it does implicitly allow, recognize the fact that capitalism is still going to exist and the boss still has the right to exploit the workers. You're not overthrowing the system when you get your first contract. Union officials tend to grow up out of the fact that contracts are difficult to negotiate. Um, I was not part of my union's negotiating team this last time around, and I cannot tell you how happy I was not to do that. Um, And unions can be large and hard to run. I am currently helping to negotiate the contract with our staff union. So now suddenly I'm somebody else's boss, which is a little weird, Um, and that is difficult. Running our union um, can be difficult, which is why usually you have professional officers do that. Uh, We're all volunteers in my union, so there are exceptions, but you usually have professionals do that. And that means that those professionals are taken off of the shop floor. They're insulated from the daily exploitation of workers. That means that... They draw salaries that have nothing to do with economic conditions. As long as there's still workers to pay dues, you can always change the balance of what dues go where to keep your salary up. It also means that you're oftentimes paid a salary far in excess of what the average worker makes. When I was living here in Chicago in the late 1990s and early 2000s, for three of those years I worked at UPS. I was driving freight. I was making the best fucking wage in transportation that you could make. I was making $24 an hour. $36 Thirty-six dollars an hour with overtime, and that was o- after eight hours every single day. So that's forty-eight thousand to sixty thousand dollars a year. The president of my union, Frank Soule, Teamsters Local Seven Ten, yes, please hiss, please boo, throw things if you like, was making five hundred thousand dollars a year. We referred to him as the half-million-dollar man. He had no idea what it was like for us actually working. Because I might have got paid a lot, but when you know how much it costs for all that, every single package that's in the back of a UPS truck, I was exploited at a very, very high and profitable rate. Much and much the same way that the hourly folks who did the package sorting were. Then President Jimmy Hoffa, Jr., he's never been a working teamster. He's a fucking lawyer. And that's all he's ever been. And he's the president of the union. He has no idea what we actually do. So this is... And so, and this is not new. This is the history of union officials all the way back. Um, so that means I get to cut out a whole lot of that. But that, that also means that these folks tend to be very conservative. I mean, they don't face the daily grind. They're, they, not to say that all union leaders are necessarily conservative. They can lead important strikes and struggles. But they're not on the shop floor or in the office or, or whatever you want to call it. I still think in industrial terms, and I'm sorry for that, um, even though I'm a grad student now and that's And that's a a real disconnect in my little head there. Um, But they want to keep workers controlled. They want to keep control of their union because unions are hard to run. They don't want workers striking, and they're usually at the same clubs with the bosses, um, meeting with them, talking about negotiating, and they're in an odd class position because they're not workers anymore, but they don't control the means of production, so they're not bosses anymore. They're in this weird middle position, and they tend to gravitate um, toward the bosses and become much more conservative. And the AFL... Leadership in the early 20th century What fits that description so well It's like a caricature You couldn't write a better satire than this um, Samuel Gompers, who led the AFL In the early 20th century Saw unskilled workers as scum Ordered members of skilled craft unions To strike on strikes by unskilled workers Signed in a no-strike pledge during the First World War And vilified and expelled radicals in the AFL As the AFL lost a million members Over the course of the 20s It's no wonder that workers and radicals Sought to take leadership of the strike into their own hands so, Toledo. The Toledo auto Light strike began February 23rd, 1934. And these will all be in 1934, so I'll, I'll stop saying that. With the unskilled auto workers voting to strike, even though the AFL charter for local 18384 did not give them the right to strike. Then, and no less conservative, AFL leader William Green ordered them back to work. They went back to work. Two months later, 4,000 workers come out again, less than half of the workforce. Unemployment in Toledo was 33%. This strike should have been an absolute failure. They should have. The company just should have got unemployed scabs in. The strike should have folded. End of story. Instead, Toledo workers were organized, Toledo unemployed workers were organized by the American Workers' Party and their leader, A.J. Musty, who had organized the Unemployed Council earlier uh, in the decade. A.J. Musty came out to the picket line, which had been enjoined to only allow 25 workers on the picket line, so scabs were crossing. He brought 1,000 unemployed people the first day, kept the scabs out. He brought 4,000 the next day. He brought 6,000 the day after that. So that a battle actually broke out between the police and the National Guard and the unemployed picketers over trying to get the scabs into the plant. Despite the fact that two two strikers were killed and many were injured, the the pickets held. After this battle, 40,000 workers rallied in Toledo and 98 Toledo locals voted to go on a general strike. Toledo Autolite settled the next day. Um, they, they rehired everybody and they agreed to recognize the union. The San Francisco general strike started with a local strike by um, dock workers, members of the International Longshoremen's Association, demanding that the, the employer recognize their union and that the union have control of the hiring hall. There's a funny situation with hiring on the docks basically, you would go and you would stand in line every day and the supervisor would look you over and say, yes, no, yes, no. And if you had a little, you know, you slipped the, the supervisor a little bit um, out of your wallet, you could get a job and if you couldn't, you didn't. And it was complete favoritism. Um, you did want to control that hiring hall so that actually you could put people to work by seniority or some other actually fair standard rather than what the uh, longshoremen were facing at the time. By May 11. And when the bosses said no, the workers went on strike. By May 11, 140,000 longshore workers from Seattle to San Diego, the entire West Coast, had joined with the San Francisco fellow workers on the picket line. The strike leaders, Harry Bridges from the Communist Party, was the head of the was voted the head of the strike committee. Um, held daily mass meetings to keep work- workers up to date and organized 24-hour picketing. Um, the police and the bosses attacked on July 5th, killing a handful of workers. Um, But the pickets held when the AFL came and said, oh here, we've got this great contract that didn't have the hiring hall, they were booed off the stage. In mid-July, 115 locals in San Francisco voted to go on general strike. Unfortunately, in this situation, the AFL Central Labor Council of Seattle called out the general strike the next day. 130,000 workers come out. But because the AFL now has control of the strike, they sent groups of workers back every day over the next four days and collapsed the strike after four days. Winning some demands for the workers, for the longshore workers, but not the hiring hall demand, not the main demand. So we have a partial victory here. The Minneapolis Teamster strike by Teamster Local 574 came in waves in 1934, with strikes in February, May, and July, August, involving increasing numbers of drivers, first in coal, and then spreading to other sections of transportation throughout Minneapolis. Again, this strike began without the blessing of Teamster officials, again, a wildcat strike. And then the strike leaders of Local 574 were members of the Communist League of America. These were all Trotskyists, Carl Skogland, Vincent Miles and Grant Dunn. I mean, taking, talk about taking um, Union Brotherhood a little too far, mm-hmm. there were three brothers there. And Farrell Dobbs, who wrote Teams to Rebellion. Um, and the CLA is the precursor to the Socialist Workers Party in the US. I can't begin to summarize the brilliance of this strike. You have to read Teams to Rebellion and you actually have to read it every year. Because it's really a manual on how to carry out a strike in a, from a rank-and-file perspective. We don't get quite enough of how the CLA, as, as how the radicals um, worked around in that. and that would be much nicer if I had that manual, too. But um, read it, read it over again, put it under your pillow, put the Bible in a drawer, keep this one on the nightstand, whatever you have to do. <laughs> Teams for Rebellion is the book to read. Um, but one of the most brilliant things that they did was rather than allow the officers to get on the strike committee. Uh, 574 set up a 75 member strike committee and then made the executive committee an arm of the strike committee. So that meant the workers always had control of the union leadership. So the union leadership could not do anything without the workers okay. Um, There was a bloody battle in July, um, Black Friday, Um, massive 40,000 member um, funeral procession for um, one of the killed workers. the leaders were arrested of the strike, but because of the democratically run strike, even though all the leadership was in jail, the flying pickets kept going. The workers were well organized enough to be on the phone with their flying pickets. No, no traffic moved in in Minneapolis. So the union won recognition from the mi- Minneapolis truckers on August 22nd. A week later, we thought this was a big news. You know, with tens of thousands of, of people involved in the strike. In Minneapolis, a week later, 400,000 textile workers, members of the United Textile Workers of America began a strike up and down the East Coast, demanding union recognition in some of the most thuggish employers in the United States. There is a long and horrendous history of poor working conditions, employer intimidation, violence, and murder in the textile industry in New England as well as in the non-union South. The terrible life of mill workers is captured for me in the lyrics and life of LMA Wiggins, and her song, The Mill Mother's Lament. And I won't sing because I can't, so I'll just read it. (laughs) We leave our homes in the morning. We kiss our children goodbye. While we slave for the bosses, our children scream and cry. And when we draw our money, our grocery bills to pay, not a cent spent for clothing, not a cent to lay away. And on that very evening, our little son will say, I need some shoes, mother, and so does sister May. How it grieves the heart of a mother, you everyone must know, But we can't buy for our children. Our wages are too low. It is for our little children that seem to us so dear. But for us nor them, dear workers, the bosses do not care. But understand, all workers, our union they do fear. Let's stand together, workers, and have a union here. Wiggins herself was a spinner in the Loray Mill near Gastonia, North Carolina. Ella May was a songwriter, union organizer for the National Textile Workers Union, mother of nine, and worked 12 hours a day in the textile mills. How you fit all that into a (laughs) life, I wish I could figure out. Um, And she was actually murdered by Laurie Mill Thugs on September 19th, 1929. So this predates the 34th strike by a bit. For the crime of organizing unemployed black workers to keep them from scabbing on the mill workers' strike. Because race relations, racial unity in the South is not to be allowed. Conditions hadn't changed much between 1929 and 1934 for the Millers. The strikes in 1934 were led mainly by women who organized with military precision um, their own flying squadrons or mobile pickets who would rush to bolster picket lines when scabs tried to cross or when the cops um, and National Guard would move in to try to break up the picket lines. Employers screamed about um, communist insurrection and they weren't far wrong. Um, the level of police and National Guard violence was tremendous, with the National Guard in Gastonia, North Carolina, given orders to shoot to kill. And I'll tell you a thing about Gastonia, that to the day the plant closed in 1970, that plant was never unionized. That's, how, that's the level of organization. There were many attempts to organize that mill. And every time, they were, it was basically killed as violently as possible. Um, the AFL leaders of the UTW could not give the lead needed to win and when leftists and communists called up and said hey we've got some experience organizing you could call, we could help they re- because the AFL leaders had the same line as the bosses that this was you know, communist insurrection they were told go away so after three weeks the UTW leaders called off the strike winning nothing in fact many, for- many workers were forced by their employers to sign a yellow dog contract and the yellow dog contract contains a pledge that says I will never join a union In order to keep my job Um, The point I want to emphasize in all of this Is that the most important strikes in 1934 won For the most part Due to the energy, spirit, and radicalism And understanding of class struggle Found in rank-and-file union members Especially those with radical politics The defeats and half-victories came at the hand Of conservative union leaders And we will see this pattern repeat In the sit-down strikes of 36-37 And I'm running Six minutes over Show Cut that part. First, the first sit down strike in U.S. history came in December of 1906 when 3,000 IWW members sat down in General Electric's Schenectady plant. Say, can anyone say Schenectady? Um, thank you. To protest the firing of three fellow workers. Um, the, and the first sit down of the Depression decade actually came in 1933 by Hormel Meat Packers in Austin, Minnesota. But sit down. A strike where you actually, rather than go out on the picket line, stay at your workstation and sit down and keep production from happening by occupying the plant, um, was to become a norm, a normal tactic in 1936 and 1937, um, and a few more in 1938. An economic upturn in '36 meant that many workers were back to work and bosses were making greater profits, and workers felt, hey, it's time to share. We've shouldered all the burden so far. It's time that you give back to us. The labor movement itself, however, was being transformed at this point. Um, increased uh, mechanization, increased automation, meant the descaling of jobs everywhere. You could have one person turn one wrench on one bolt, and then the next piece would, would come in front of them. And if anyone's seen the Charlie Chaplin film, Modern Times, you know the scene that I'm talking about. And if you haven't, go watch it tomorrow. Um, the AFL didn't want to organize de workers. But that's where industry was headed. And some leaders of the AFL, like John Lewis and others, Saw that we need to organize these unskilled workers and we need to organize on an industrial level. And what I mean by that, whereas the AFL was organized on craft, so if you're the assembler and you're the tire builder, you're organized in different unions, although you work in the same building. The AFL said, or the CIO said, no, we'll organize everybody in the same industry, all in the same plant, all in the same union, so that the skills can't scab on each other, which often happened with the AFL. The CIO split from the AFL. Um, in 1935, Committee for Industrial Organization, later named Congress of Industrial Organizations. Um, And the CIO was a huge improvement on the AFL, not only in organizing industry-wide, but it understood from the very beginning because that many of these workers were young, and many of these workers were black, the unskilled workers, that they had to take an official stand against racism and lynching and racial segregation, which the AFL wouldn't touch. And so that was was a great thing about the CIO. The touchdown sit-down strike of 1936 37 was the Flint sit down strike, starting in December 36, lasting until February 37. The Flint sit down idled 47,000 GM employees in Flint, in the city of Flint, and 140,000 of GM's entire workforce of 150,000. So, like 93% of the workers' runs were out of work because of this one strike. The sit down leaders, who were socialists and communists, um, had to draw up really elaborate plans to fool company spies because If a a company spy turned you in for being a red or a unionist, you would either get fired or have an accident. The strike's main aim was the recognition by GM of the United Auto Workers Union for bargaining rights for the workers. The strike included not only workers sitting down inside of the plant, but other workers and workers' wives and girlfriends outside of the plant, setting up picket lines, organizing them, bringing in food, and protecting the plant from the police and the National Guard, which was called out by... Anybody want to guess? The new Democratic governor of Michigan, Frank Murphy. New Deal governor, all supposed to be all about you know FDR and bringing manna to the workers and all that. Who called out the National Guard? The Democrats. Um, strikers faced down the police and National Guard several times um, with the women's auxiliary, led by Genora Johnson Dollinger, being born out of this. Instead of just setting up the kitchen and taking care of the kids and making meals, the women's auxiliary actually went out on the picket line and fought the cops and protected the men in the plants. And that was a real dip that was a tremendous change in how the labor movement was being run at that time. So Frank Murphy calls in the National Guard, and this is like February 1937. The strike's been going on now for six weeks, um, and he's trying to bring it to an end. And the workers send out, who've been sitting in the plant, send out a telegram to Murphy on February 2nd. And I'm not I'm going to read you the entire telegram plus a couple of lines I had to add because one of the things that we do as documentary poet- poets is we take an existing document and we change the lines to take that formal language it's written in and make it more poetic. And um, I've added just a couple lines of context. So what you get is what we call a found poem. Unarmed is we, the members of the United Auto Workers Union, staging a sit-down strike at GM in Flint, are... The introduction of the militia, sheriffs or police with murderous weapons will mean a bloodbath of unarmed workers. We have decided to stay in the plant. We have no illusion about the sacrifices which this decision will entail. We full expect that if a violent effort is made to oust us, many of us will be killed. We take this means of making it known to our wives, to our children, to the people of the state of Michigan, to the country, That if this result follows from an attempt to eject us, you must be held responsible for our deaths. The attack didn't come. And on February 11th, GM settled, recognizing the union and signing a six-month contract. The sit-down tactic caught caught fire across the United States. Over the course of 19... By the end of 1937, half a million workers out of the f- two million workers who went on strike will have taken part in a sit-down strike. Dog catchers, hospital workers, tobacco workers, rug weavers, garbage collectors, opticians went on sit-down strikes. I mean, usually my optician is sitting down anyway when he's facing me. I don't, don't understand it. Um, the number of strikes in 1936 had been 2,000. That strike, The number of strikes rose in 1937 to 4,700. Um, the strike tactics spread to other areas of struggle. Sit-down took place in relief offices, in unemployment offices, against evictions. Prisoners downstate and Joliet held a sit-down strike. Children in movie theaters when they tried to cut out the cartoon stage a sit-down strike.
0: <laughs>
1: sit-down strike became a cultural norm. Um, jazz singer and composer Lil Hart and Armstrong was so inspired by sit-down strike, she penned a song called, I'm on a sit-down strike for rhythm. A little bit of that song goes, I've nothing left that I can call my own. You took my dance, you took my song. Give me back my rhythm. Give me back my swing. Give me back those songs I love to sing. Oh, I'm on a sit-down strike for rhythm, on a sit-down strike for dance. I have nothing left to give them, not even a song of romance, on a sit-down strike for hotcha.
0: <laughs> Nineteen,
1: the sit-down strikes. Class and radicalism were a part of everyday life. There were numerous publications by radicals and left organizations Wide circulation everywhere across the United States Um, Art, theory, politics, struggle There was a little magazine in um, Davenport, Iowa Which is near where I'm from Called The Left And it had these grand ideas of talking about theory And and poetry and all these things They got to two issues (laughs) Which is why Joel Geyer always tells us You've really got something when you hit the third issue Um, (laughs) To sum up the struggles and the art of the working class and the left in the 1930s are a huge topic. I've talked for 43 minutes, 44 minutes, <laughs> um, trying to summarize a lot of stuff. Many aspects of this history, of this art, are ignored or written out of official histories. And this includes the canon and English departments, which I didn't even touch on. And that's a whole other topic if we want to talk about culture and things. And those of you who are at music, you know, got a little taste of that. And obviously, there are many more that I could have touched on. It is a history that is rich in inspiration and lessons for the fights for unions tomorrow and against unemployment today and tomorrow. It is a history that we must not only keep alive, but mine for its riches and repeat for all who will listen. Thanks. It is seldom that anything is cut and dry, whether it's what sets off a strike or a struggle or the role of union officials and volunteers in labor federations. Samuel Gomper is being sort of very cut and dried. He was an ass. Um, Other folks aren't necessarily like that. And lots of times, how we relate to them depends on the struggle that's happening right now and how they relate to that struggle. Um, We in the ISO tend to to emphasize rank and file um, activity because we think the only way that the working class can ever come to change society, to overthrow capitalism, is they have to learn actually how to run society themselves. And you can't do that by having a service-style a service union that goes out and does everything for you and expects you just to sit back and enjoy the benefits or take the lumps as the lumps come. You actually have to be active yourself. Um, and, and that act is transformative. We change. Um, I didn't get to this point by not struggling over the course of my life in dozens and dozens of picket lines and struggles and fights across the country um, you know I was a suburban white kid in Iowa um, 98% white when I was growing up. Um, you know I had to learn a lot of things the hard way and everybody comes to that um, as Alan said at a meeting before um, nobody's born a revolutionary socialist. you learn you, be, you you struggle you're transformed things happen to you um, and at different times different forces pull on you um, and sometimes that has a real personal effect and your life falls apart, sometimes you're able to be a part of the struggle. Things happen. I've gone up and down in the last 23 years um, and have sort of been out of practice for many of the last 8 to 10 years. So, you know, things happen to us. People change. It's part of the... Because there wasn't a lot of struggle where I was at in Iowa at the time. And personal stuff being personal stuff, you know, things happen. So, um, you know, nothing is cut and dry. But when you want to talk about A decade in 45 minutes, everything has to be cut and dried. Everything has to
0: be as simple as possible. Uh,
1: So, you know, if I wasn't as nuanced as I should have been, and I tried to recognize where that was happening, um, please understand. And um, certainly you can have a lot more uh, nuance in 800 pages than you can have in 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, I am wondering about Patty's question. Because a couple things come to mind about organizing for the unemployed. Now, you're a bank employee, and that one's harder. Uh, But if I was an unemployed teacher, I would look to be organizing with the working teachers. I would look to be organizing with the people who are still working in the job that I had before. Um, And organizing the unemployed, um, or electricians, or or building construction. I would be talking to those folks together, the unemployed um, building trades and the, and the employed building trades at the same time, because the building trades people are going to get it; they're going to understand it pretty seriously. Because that's they know that they're just a phone call away from working or not working um, in, a, in a very in a very real way that's different than um, some other workers have. Same with civil service. I think because of the attacks on civil service and the layoffs, there's a chance there to organize. Um, your situation specifically, I think, requires some more discussion and more creative thinking and brainstorming. Um, more than we can spend in the course of this talk. But this gets back to the Sparks issue. You have to build the unemployed councils in order to have the unemployed councils have an effect on society. It is entirely possible, and I don't know much more about the unemployed councils. We, I can talk more about the sit-downs, and I can talk more about Minneapolis, than I can talk about the unemployed councils. But it's entirely possible that those struggles never would have happened if the CP hadn't been under orders to organize unemployed councils. Sometimes the spark is the fact that you've built the organization to debate the struggle. And sometimes it's the other way. The organization comes in and joins the struggle and then helps build it. There's, there's a dynamism there. Nothing, nothing is cut and dry. Um, it, it's hard to predict. And I cannot tell you how many movements and groups I've started that failed. We had two meetings, never made it to the third. Just like we had two journals and never made it to the third. Um, those things happen, and sometimes you just have to experiment. And sometimes you're completely surprised Um, By the results, because people come and it's fabulous. Um, Like Jesse was telling earlier about organizing this rally of teachers in Chicago a couple weeks ago. um, Mostly through posters and and going out and building it in schools. And 5,000 Chicago teachers come out of a workforce which is about 10,000 or something like that. 30,000? But still, a sixth. Of the workforce. I wish I could get a sixth of my union out to anything aside from a picket line. Um, that was the only way I could get you know, half of them out, was to actually hold a strike. Um, if I could just hold a rally and get that many out, that would be something else. Um, so we usually get to push about 10%. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard to predict, and sometimes you just have to try. But I think part of the trying is based on a set of politics that understand that the way to win is to actually put workers into action. In, in, into their own action that they lead. And when we think about um, the comrades in the Communist League of America in, in Minneapolis, they went into the trucking industry in 1928. It took six years to build to that strike. That's where they learned how to lead. They worked every day. They looked for opportunities to lead small struggles around Small workplace issues They got fired, they got blacklisted They got rehired under false names At different companies um, It's a little harder to do now that we have social security And I didn't even get to talk about social security at all I mean, That, that, that looms large over the talk of the 1930s And I, I ignored it So don't Please go read about social security um, and, and think about it um, So I mean that is you, you learn to lead in the process of building the struggle um, but with that set of politics and knowing the history And again, it's a dynamic situation Sometimes you learn more in the few moments of struggle Than you learn reading all the books At the end of the second day of the strike At the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign I knew a
0: whole lot more
1: than I had known for years before that About you know, leading a strike, no matter how many of these books I'd read um, And I'm not sure I'd do it again no, I'm just kidding. But, um, you know, the panic attacks that set in before the strike were very real. <laughs> it was a very odd experience. Um, and that's not written in any of the books. Nobody talks about having a panic attack before the strike. Um, I feel let down.
0: Write the book.
1: Well, I'm telling you all so you can go tell everybody else. I, I prefer oral history myself. Um, I think some of the current issues of race and labor Are some of the same issues While we don't have the extreme segregation The Jim Crow, the things of that nature We don't have the lynchings that we had In the early part of the 20th century We still do have James Bird. We Lynched in Texas In, in the 1990s, dragged behind a pickup truck um, We still have the Klan I don't How many anti-Klan rallies have we been into In the last 23 years between us and the Midwest um, It's more than we can count um, there are, there's still a high level of racism in the United States that has to be fought. It's still why the South is, is non-union, for the most part, because of racial segregation. This, despite the tremendously brilliant examples that you had in Birmingham, a- a- Alabama in the 30s, and even in um, Arkansas, where the bus drivers just organized, just unionized this year on the campus with the mostly black women bus drivers and the white students, um, those examples are, are few and far between. And we need more, more of that to overcome the racism that we still see in the labor movement. And that means you know, more, more action, more anti-racist from the, unity from the bottom, from the workers, but also a lead from the top. We need union leaders to come out against racism, against racial segregation in the workplace and in their unions um, so that we can really address that. Um, the question of union solidarity. Part of the problem with the unions in the United States right now, and I'm gonna again I'm gonna speak in broad generalizations, and it's not it's gonna be it's not gonna be at all nuanced and whatnot, is that we have this defensive building going on right now. Rather than going out and organizing workers in a way that we should, with exceptions like SCIU and a few others, you have unions amalgamating, joining, raiding other unions, combining. Um, The laborers in New York, Local 79, um, combined nine trade unions, um, building trades unions, into one about 10 years ago. And you're thinking New York, skyscrapers, shit's being built and repaired all the time, right? Their total membership is 900. It's nothing. It sucks eggs. But that was the only way that they could hold on to any sort of union and union and union bureaucracy was to combine all these members together um, and other unions so unions are competing with each other for members and rating each other rather than organizing new members because reorganizing already exists, already organized members is somewhat easier than going out and convincing people um, that they need a union in some places and I'll tell you I lost that fight a number of times. Um, at a couple different workplaces trying to convince people that they they need to join a union. I saw it, um, but I wasn't able to convince everybody else. So it's a difficult thing. Um. Um, It's easier to convince the people who are already convinced. Um, So I think we need to stop looking at each other as enemies in the labor movement, and we need some basic class politics. The employers are the enemy. The boss is the enemy. Those are the people who we need to be fighting, not each other. We're going to have different strategies. We can work that out amongst ourselves, um, but we really need to have a united face against the bosses and the attitude the poor attitude to unions um, that is with us today is in large part due to McCarthyism in the 1950s when Reds were systematically chased out of the unions when you had the, uh, the blacklist when you had the McCarthy era hearings um, when you know they went after every communist in the United States and tried to chase them out um, and union leaders at the time went along with that and chased the Reds out of the union um, so that we lost the best organizers, the people from the 30s, the the people who, in the midst of the struggle, became communists and radicals. Farrell Dobbs wrote Teamster Rebellion. Went on to be a leading member of the of the, of the um Social Workers Party and the Teamsters. Voted Republican. He voted for Hoover in 1932. Not even in 28, 32. And by 1934, he's a communist and he's leading a, this great strike. Um, people change. Um, and. Those people were chased out of unions. That sort of, that, that, and so we've lost some of this history. It's part of the reason that we always have to try to reclaim this history. It's why these, I mean, Amazon sells these books, but they'll sell anything. Um, but you don't, these books aren't often taught outside of, you know, the few red um, professors on a, on a campus and, and situations like this and, and some labor circles. And so part of reclaiming that history, which is why these, Wisconsin was pretty exciting, actually, to tell you the truth. Um, you know, we, we have, a, we have a, part of our job, is to be the class memory and bring those lessons to the class and sometimes we do that through books and sometimes we do that through our actions and the other thing I'm just going to let you know that um, you really should listen to Alan Moss's talk that he gave earlier today, not the one he's giving right now which I'm sure is also fabulous, but the one he gave earlier today on Obama and liberalism in office because you'll get a sense, because he talked a lot about FDR in the 30s because we obviously during Obama's election there was lots of comparisons to the 30s and FDR. Um, and the job of liberalism and of the Democratic Party is to come into office and make everybody feel better about capitalism after Republicans have gone and pissed everybody off. And that's what they do. So they're still a pro-capitalist party. It's why the Democratic governors still call the National Guard because they're still about the profit system. And so we still end up disappointed. Um, and that's a context to the 30s that I didn't make time to put in here and didn't, and didn't spend the time on. And I think it, it's an important context. Now, to um, yeah, wrap up, I want to give the last word to Richard Wright. Because the thing about Langston Hughes and Richard Wright is they were both in and around the Communist party in the 1930s, as were lots and lots of artists and poets and writers and actors. Um, Because art has an effect on society, society has an effect on art, people are inspired by artists, artists are inspired by movements in society. And Richard Wright, besides the novels that we all know, also wrote some poetry. And um, the one I want to read for you is We of the Streets. And it talks about life in in cities for for blacks you know mostly in, in in the ghettos and whatnot but it also talks about and, and most of the poem is about that life. But there's a little bit in there about the collective action that took place on the streets too in, in New York and around the country and that's where that's where Wright ends on that because you live every day but there' are also the days that you fight and that make the living worth it so let's um, let's have we of the streets streets are full of the scent of us, odors of onions drifting from doorways, effluvium of baby newborn downstairs, seeping smell of warm soap suds, the streets as lush with ferment of our living. Our seawater is swelling in gutters, our lightning is the blue flame of an acetylene torch, billboards blossom with the colors of a billion flowers, we hear thunder when the L roars. Our strip of sky is a dirty shirt. We have grown used to the nervous landscapes, chimney broken down horizons, and the sun dying between tenements. We have grown to love the streets, the ways of the streets. Our bodies are like worn pavement. Our emblems are street emblems, stringy curtains blowing in the windows, sticky-fingered babies tumbling on doorsteps, deep-cellared laughs meant for everybody, slow groans heard in the area way our sunshine is a common hope our common summer and our common winter a common joy and a common sorrow our fraternity is the shoulder rubbing crude with unspoken love our password of the wry smile that speaks a common fate our love is nurtured by the soft flare of gaslights, our hate and icy wind screaming around corners and there is something in the streets that made us feel immortality when we rushed along 10,000 strong hearing our chant fill the world wanting to do what none of us would do alone aching to shout the forbidden word knowing that we of the
0: streets are deathless